Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have a special guest, a man who in my view spans the wonders of the 20th century into the miracles of the 21st. I'd like to welcome Keith Strop. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be with you. As always on this show, the opinions that are espoused are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And insofar as you divine legal advice from this program, it is not legal advice intended to be applied to individual legal situations. If you require legal advice, see a lawyer, give them all the facts, and that's the best way to go at things. So I'd like to start off a little bit, Keith that I'm going to date myself. I have a feeling the collegians here are not going to be familiar with Senator Everett McKinley Dirksen of Illinois, but he truly was one of the giants of the 20th century. And as I understand your career, an early stop was in his office. Yes, I grew up on a farm in rural southern Illinois, and my father was a a sort of a, a local activist, political activist, uh, Republican Party, and he knew Everett Dirksen not that well, but, he, but you know, he had met him different times. Everett Dirksen at the time was the minority leader in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, but he was from Illinois. So, like a lot of elected officials, they give out a certain number of internships to young people who are coming to Washington to go to school or to, to work. So, when I first started Georgetown Law School first year, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job with Senator Dirksen in his minority leader's office in Washington. And the, the only reason I've always thought that was kind of uh, coincidentally somewhat important was that it allowed me to get over any sense of intimidation about Capitol Hill and, and our elected officials in Congress. When you see Congress from a distance, sometimes they seem like, you know, larger-than-life characters, and it's hard to try to convince them that they're wrong about certain policies. But when you see them up close, frankly, they're mere mortals like the rest of us. And uh, just for example, as an intern for Senator Dirksen back in those years, one of the jobs that I always had, he did a lot of uh, traveling to speak at state Republican events, and Whenever he had a, had a date and he was about to leave on the airplane to go meet someone, uh, they would tell me who to be in touch with so that the person on the other end knew his favorite uh, liquor and had it handy when he arrived. <laughs> what, what, what did so, Senator Dirksen like to drink? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure I remember. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it was uh, bourbon. But I can't remember the brand. But I always had to laugh at myself that all of these important things going on on Capitol Hill. But what I was dealing with was making sure the senator had good whiskey when he arrived. <laughs> it sounds like a good way to lubricate the legislative process. Well, that's that's true. And, and by the way, uh, it's not like there are all. I mean, there there have always been has always been a lot of alcohol use among members of Congress. No doubt about that. Some of them enjoy reputations as being, you know, total booze heads. Most of the time they they have enough work to do on their schedule that they, they are limited in how much time they have free to enjoy whiskey or, or any other social intoxicant. But nonetheless, there's always been a close relationship between Congress and the alcohol industry, no doubt about that. So did your 
lack of intimidation in the legislative process ultimately proved to be of assistance to you in altering the course of the nation's marijuana laws? Well, it did in that, you know, jumping ahead a few years, when I graduated law school in 1968, it was a height of the Vietnam War, and more importantly to me, it was a height of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And like most of my contemporaries, if you were male during those decades, you were subject to the draft the minute you were no longer a full-time student. They, They didn't draft women back then. And so it, what it meant was, for most of us who were not anxious to get drafted and sent off to Southeast Asia to fight a war that we didn't understand, we were encouraged to stay in school. So naturally, had a lot of us who uh, went to graduate school that might not have otherwise or went to law school that might not have otherwise, and certainly I was among those. But nonetheless, by the time I graduated in 68, I was finished with school, but I still had two years of eligibility for the draft. And in fact, I had been given my, uh, my I had gotten an order to go take my physical. I passed my physical and I was just a couple of weeks away from my report date when I managed to get what was called, and, and I say this, I did it with the help of the National Lawyers Guild, a group of very progressive lawyers. Sure. And it's still around. It's still a good, good organization. At the time, they were offering free legal advice to those who were trying to stay out of the war. And um, they basically offered me three things. They offered to put me in touch with some psychiatrists in Baltimore who would say that I was gay. And back then, it wasn't don't ask, don't tell. If you were gay, they didn't want you in the military at all. Now, I thought that was somewhat of an attractive option compared to going off to war. Now, unfortunately, I was married at the time, and I had a young daughter, and <laughs> my wife was not as thrilled about that option as I was. Secondly, they offered to put me in touch with people in Canada. There's a long history of Canada welcoming dissidents from the United States, and the, the same was true during the Vietnam War. Trudeau, the original first Trudeau, sure. uh, who, who was a uh, premier of Canada at the time, had actually said publicly that uh, any Americans who want to come up here and, and avoid the war, you know, you'll, be, you'll be welcomed. It, it won't be a problem. And so that also was attractive. But on the other hand, um, when you leave the country to avoid the draft, there was no guarantee we would ever be allowed back in. There were certainly thousands of young Americans who did that, uh, but I wasn't sure I wanted to never be allowed back in my own country. And so I, I wasn't totally sold on that option. But third, they gave me, uh, they, they thought they could get me what is called a critical skills deferment. It was under the old draft act, the Farmer Draft Act. Mm-hmm. It basically said that if the work you're doing in the United States is important to the health, safety, and welfare of the nation, then if your draft board elects, they can give you this critical skills department so you stay home and spend the two years that you would have been in Vietnam doing this important work uh, domestically. Sure. Now, I, I would be the first to tell you that the work I was doing was not that important, but it sounded important. I had been hired right out of law school by a presidential commission called the National Commission on Product Safety. It was a result of the work that Ralph Nader had done. Right. um, And 
most people had never heard of the Presidential Commission, but they'd all heard of Ralph Nader, and he'd written a book called Unsafe at Any Speed about Corvair Corvair being a dangerous car. And then he'd begun to branch out into other dangerous products. So uh, for the American public, if they heard about, uh, they had an experience with an exploding soda bottle or something that, you know, blinded some neighbor kid, uh, they didn't know to contact the commission, but they knew to contact Ralph. So we would spend a lot of time during those two years. There were four lawyers on the staff. We would go up and read Ralph's mail to find out which products were causing the, the biggest problems so we could come back and, and uh, working with the commission, we planned public hearings to focus attention on the need for legislation. And um, uh, in that experience, of course, um, I ended up being introduced to the concept of public interest law, and uh, I really had never heard of it. I thought lawyers generally uh, went back home after law school and practiced law in the traditional sense, probably made a lot of money, but maybe had a boring life. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But once I was introduced to public interest law, the difference is with public interest law, you try to use your legal skills and your legal education to impact public policy rather than to uh, benefit individual clients. Now, it can be a liberal cause or a conservative cause. You know, the ideology can be all over the map. But the point is you're you're trying to impact policy rather than uh, helping clients get rich. And that seemed to me to to be an incredibly uh, fascinating variety of the practice of law. So when the commission ended after two years, uh, I had become quite familiar with Nader's public interest work on product safety. I was too old by that point to be drafted, so it was the first time I'd actually had an opportunity to think seriously about what I wanted to do with my professional life, and I realized I wanted to do some version of public interest law, but uh, product safety, while I thought it was a worthwhile uh, project, was not a burning desire in my life. I had first smoked marijuana, when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School in 1965. A lot of marijuana smokers begin earlier in life. I recognize it when they're teenagers or certainly when they're in undergraduates in college. I was a, an alcohol drinker and a, and a frat boy as an undergraduate, and I didn't uh, actually try marijuana until my first year at Georgetown Law. But by the point the commission was over, I had been smoking for about five, six years by that point, and it occurred to me that what I'd really like to do is legalize marijuana. And uh, in a kind of a naive manner, I, I certainly didn't, I think, appreciate quite uh, the significance of trying to move the country that far. But uh, I called some friends together, some professional colleagues, a couple of journalists, and uh, I found it normal as a consumer lobby for marijuana smokers. And we founded it in the late 1970. An interestingly, Gallup Poll, uh, the polling organization, had just the year before, in 1969, done their first poll asking the American public, how do you feel about legalizing marijuana? Prior to that, it was not even considered significant enough to violate aggression. In any event, when we started normal, only 12% of the American public supported marijuana legalization. 88% of the public were opposed. Why, why do you I think that I, was, Keith? Well, remember, we'd had prohibition by that 
point for you know 60 years or so since 1937 federally and even longer in, in many states. We had lived through that reefer madness era of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s when the government propaganda was outrageous. I mean, it, it, it's, if anyone's ever taken the time to see those movies like Reefer Madness or Marijuana Assassin of Youth, you'll see that the suggestion, more than the suggestion, the allegation was that if you smoke marijuana, it's going to make white women want to sleep with black men. It's going to destroy your life. I mean, the the marijuana probation was incredibly racist uh, in its origins. And uh, in order to support prohibition, the government felt obliged to continue to exaggerate the potential for harm. So, we began this long period of time when uh, everyone heard uh, over and over again that if you smoke marijuana, the marijuana may not be so bad, but eventually it'll lead to harder stuff. You'll end up being a heroin addict. So by the time normal came along, um, you know, almost nine out of ten Americans had had uh, had drunk the Kool-Aid. Uh, so um, we obviously had a lot of work to do before we could expect to change any thoughts. It's, it's fascinating in, in that. that you had an era when things socially were sort of topsy-turvy <laughs> with the protests against the Vietnam War and moving through the summer of love. And, and at that point in time, it was becoming so much more marijuana culture was becoming so much more widespread in the younger population. And it seems like that would probably be, you know, a, a space that would be ripe for doing what you wanted to accomplish. Well, there's there's no doubt that when you go to the anti-war demonstrations, and the, the largest ones were the ones held here in Washington, D.C., uh, marijuana smoking was prevalent and open. And it didn't mean everybody at the anti-war demonstrations smoked marijuana, because a lot of them were older Americans who weren't even that familiar with it. But smoking marijuana became kind of a shorthand way of saying, I opposed the war in Vietnam, and by the way, I have some other problems with governmental policy as well. And so when you go to those big demonstrations, people would light up joints and just pass them down the row. And if somebody was a marijuana smoker, they'd take a hit. If they weren't, they'd just simply take the joint and pass it on to somebody else. So you're right. It was uh, There's no doubt that marijuana smoking at that point was almost entirely identified with the anti-war movement and also the gay rights movement that was beginning to pick up steam. Now, for us at the time, we thought that was good because obviously we were getting reinforcement from younger Americans and people who opposed the war that they appreciated what we were trying to do. I will say that as I look back on it decades later, I realized that for a lot of my contemporaries, I'm 75 years old, and mm-hmm. for a lot of the people of my generation, uh, they supported the war in Vietnam. And so for them, when they thought of marijuana, they thought of that young, long-haired draft avoider, draft evader, who was burning his draft card in the public park and probably smoking a joint at the same time. And, pro- kind and of a probably typical ha- image. He probably also had bone spurs. <laughs> Well, that's right. When I when I hear about our our president's bone spurs, I, it makes me almost embarrassed that uh, that I tried hard to stay out of the war. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I actually have learned, of course, as you get older, you do. I've learned to appreciate the the courage and commitment of those people in my generation who did go fight Absolutely. that war. 
and uh, they deserve recognition for the courage they showed and and for the families who lost loved ones. I think we lost 65,000 people or something during that war. Um, but, uh, again, marijuana was so closely tied to the anti-war movement that then during the, the 70s and 80s in particular, uh, for a lot of older Americans, they just could not embrace reforming the marijuana laws because they thought that meant changing their views on the war in Vietnam. They thought that meant embracing these long, long-haired hippies. And, of course, they didn't understand what that whole youth rebellion was about. So uh, we paid dearly for that, and it meant that for a long time, until a lot of my, uh, my contemporaries either died or retired and stepped aside and were replaced by younger people, we just couldn't move the legalization forward. And, um, I sometimes tell people they, they want to know why we're doing so well today compared to these decades where it didn't seem like we made much progress at all. And I tell them that our strategy was, if necessary, we'll outlive our opponents. And I think that's largely <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I think, you know, I like to think that we had something to do with that. I think we educated people. I think we demonstrated by encouraging marijuana smokers to come out of the closet that marijuana smokers come in all shapes and sizes. They're not all liberals or long hairs or radicals. They're just average Americans who work hard and raise families and pay taxes. But when they relax in the evening... Uh, they may prefer to smoke a joint where tens of millions of other Americans would prefer to have a glass of wine or drink a beer. I'm actually by Drago. When I come home in the evening, uh, I'm like most Washingtonians. I, I watch the news on all three networks. And uh, I, the first thing I do when I get home is I pour a glass of wine and roll a joint. I'm by Drago. It makes sense. So when you embarked <laughs> on this project long ago, did you think it would be easy to accomplish, or what were your expectations? Well, I, I've tried different times to go back you know, in my mind and, and figure out what I really expected. Now, to some degree, uh, of course, whenever we were doing interviews with media, and there was a lot of media during those early years, because the fact that someone was willing to stand up publicly and say, I smoke marijuana and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, was kind of newsworthy at the time. So uh, I remember being asked some in the mid-70s, early 70s, um, how long I expected it would take for normal to achieve its goals. And I said something like, I think it'll take at least a decade. Well, you know, here we are 40 some, 45 years later, and we still have a lot of work to do. Now, uh, we are, in fact, winning it, and that 12% support we enjoyed when we started is now, according to a number of polls, around 68%. And again, that's not just medical use. That's 68%. Almost 7 out of 10 adult Americans now favor full legalization. And one reason why that's fascinating is that only about 14% of the public are regular smokers. About 40, 45% have, have smoked a joint at some time in their lives, but most of them are not current smokers. And the fact that, uh, you know, you can't change public policy with 14 or 15%. So we couldn't win this issue without first winning the hearts and minds of a majority of the non-smokers. And that's exactly what has finally happened. It's not pro-marijuana. When you dig into the polling data, it's anti-prohibition. A majority 
of Americans have concluded finally, I think they should have been able to make that conclusion a lot earlier, but they finally concluded that prohibition causes more harm than the use of the drug itself. The same thing we learned with alcohol prohibition. It's a failed public policy. So we're winning this today, but it's not because people are pro-pot. It's because they're anti-prohibition. So do you think that the medical variable and the tax variable have also been very helpful to your cause? Oh, I think, by the way, the uh, the medical in particular deserves a special uh, discussion. When California became the first state to legalize the medical use in 1996, and just to put this in perspective, during the 1970s, there was something called the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, and it was uh, created because uh, the... Uh, Federal Drug Act had been declared unconstitutional uh, in 1969. Now, it didn't mean that we didn't have any anti-marijuana laws because every state has their own anti-marijuana law. But the federal law was was held unconstitutional um, in 69. And so in 1970, the Congress got together to pass what's called the Controlled Substances Act. And it's still our Federal Drug Act. Um, And Mostly it's terrible stuff. It, it's, you know, I won't go into the details, but it, it relies on locking people up for long periods of time for nonviolent drug offenses, marijuana and otherwise. Um, but what, um, excuse me, I got myself sidetracked there. With, with the commission, uh, they, there was a, a congressman by the name of Ed Koch, who at the time he was in Congress in the early 70s was a very progressive liberal politician. Now, later on, he was mayor of New York for two or three terms. And I he remember. At all during that. But when he was in Congress, he managed to get a provision in the new Federal Controlled Substances Act uh, to establish this National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. The president had the power to, and this was Nixon, had the power to appoint nine members, and uh, Congress would select four from among themselves, two senators and two members of Congress, to serve on the commission. Now, at the time, uh, we didn't expect much of that because Nixon uh, was very open about how he thought marijuana was terrible and led to heroin and, you know, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And so um, we assumed he would appoint people with his point of view and they would simply come back and rubber stamp current policy. Well, surprise, in the course of the... Uh, They had one year to study and make a recommendation on marijuana policy and then the second year on other drug policies. And when they came back at the end of their first year in uh, in 1972, uh, they surprised people, including the president, by recommending that we decriminalize minor marijuana offenses. Now, that's not legalized. They weren't proposing that we establish legal regulated markets where consumers could go buy their marijuana and have it tested in a laboratory like we have today in more and more states. They didn't have the courage to make that, and I think it probably was wise because if they would have made that recommendation back in 72, I think it would have been uh, ignored totally. Uh, Rather, what they said was, look, 90% of the arrests that were occurring were for personal use, people with possession of an ounce or less of marijuana. So they said, why don't we at least remove criminal penalties for the possession and use of marijuana and for sharing marijuana between consenting adults, because they realized, in fact, that's how marijuana smokers did. We all tended to 
we'd have a connection on the black market, and they didn't always have marijuana, but when they did have it, uh, we'd buy some and we'd share it with our friends. And it was the same thing with our friends. It's the way a black market operates. So um, it, it was indeed uh, a big push for a few years between 93, when Oregon adopted a version of decriminalization until, I'm sorry, uh, 73, until 78, when uh, Nebraska became the last of 11 states to adopt a version of decriminalization. Um, we thought we were winning this battle. I mean, Sounds like really you were. For sure. Yeah, well, it, it sure, surely did feel that way, which is probably why when somebody asked me how long I thought it was going to take, I said probably another 10 years. Well, uh, we obviously were confronted with reality at some point. And as I say, after passing decriminalization in 11 states, we went 18 years from 1978 until 1996 without a single statewide victory in the marijuana legalization. Why? Why, a, why was that? Long, well, it, it was the era of Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, Just Say No. Remember the rise of the parents groups where they were the, the question for about 10 years, whenever you raised any drug policy issue, the question would, uh, well, what will be the impact on children? In other words, they were, the suggestion was that you shouldn't allow adults to, to do anything that was inappropriate for children. Now, if you think about that, that's absurd. You, you couldn't drive cars or have sex or fly airplanes or lots of other things that it's perfectly fine for adults to do, but we don't want children doing them. Well, uh, un unfortunately, from the late 70s until the early 90s, uh, that was the mood of the country regarding marijuana policy as well. And so uh, we had a long dry spell. But when we finally surfaced again with a statewide win, it was the 1996 voter initiative in California, and all of a sudden, it wasn't talking about let's smoke marijuana and have fun. It was talking about the importance of the medical use of marijuana. And once that began to be accepted by people, other states began to consider legalizing medical marijuana. By the way, today, I think there are 33 states. That's I was going to ask how many states have yeah. it. How many recreational well, states are there now? Uh, there are 11 recreational states plus the District of Columbia. I think there are 33 that have meaningful medical use statutes. And, and I'm quite confident that within four or five years, we'll have medical use in every state. And I think probably within 10 years, we'll have full legalization in every state. But these things do take time. And in particular, they take time because just as with alcohol prohibition, we're not trying to get the federal government to dictate policy to the states. We're trying to get the federal government to simply get out of the way so the states are free to experiment with new policies if they want to. And at the end of alcohol prohibition, uh, lots of states uh, stayed with prohibition for a period of time. And even today, in some counties in Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, they're still dry counties. You still can't buy or sell alcohol. Now, you can go over to the adjacent county, and, and there'll be plenty of opportunities. But so that's sort of the same uh, procedures that we're following with marijuana legalization. And what that means is that the states that are more progressive and that feel more comfortable with marijuana, they obviously can go out ahead of the rest of them, and they can demonstrate how the system works. But over a period of time, I think, 
all states are going to recognize that it's in their own interest uh, to have a regulated system rather than a black market. The question isn't whether people are going to smoke. People have been smoking for thousands of years. The question is whether you have a black market or a legally regulated market. Now, that also brings in the second factor you mentioned, which is tax revenue. Uh, no doubt about it that today uh, the tax revenue that's available to states that want to take the final step and totally regulate uh, recreational marijuana is significant. I mean, I think the California alone, I think they're expecting to sell $6 billion worth of uh, recreational marijuana this year. Uh, so, uh, obviously, if you're in a state that still has prohibition, but a state next door, you're seeing your own citizens crossing the state line and spending their money next door, that may last for a while because you still think somehow that prohibition is, is a safer policy. But over the long haul, uh, you're going to be replaced by younger policymakers who understand that uh, legalization is a far superior system. So I, I think we're well on the way to winning this finally. Uh, now, I say that recognizing that I've always been uh, thinking it was going to happen sooner than it did. So, <laughs> Well, you're 75 now. You're saying it should be accomplished within 10 years. So we have to bring you back when you're 85 and have a, <laughs> have a celebration here at uh, Dragon Digital Radio. Well, I certainly hope that we're both still around in 10 more years. <laughs> I can assure you, Keith, it's part of my plan. Okay, good, good. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm afraid we have to wind up. This has been the legendary Keith Strop, the founder of Normal, and a man who has lived many lives. And we want to thank you very much for your appearance, and I hope we can bring you back again to talk about further chapters in this story. I look forward to it, Bob. Thank you for having me. All right. This has been Dragon Digital Radio. It's Everyday Law. Bob Clark, farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.